So today is the first Sunday in And we're in Acts 12. I invite you to turn there with me, either in your Bibles or on the screen. We're going to read together the first uh, 19 verses. And this is what Luke writes. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, eh, must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand to them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. In his wonderful little book, Connecting with God, Herb Miller tells the story of a church on Main Street in a small town. When a nightclub opened across the street from the church, the church organized an all-night prayer meeting. 
The intercessors prayed that God might burn down the church, excuse me, burn down the club. And shortly after they commenced to praying, lightning struck the club and it burned to the ground. The owner of the nightclub sued the church. The church denied all responsibility. So the nightclub and the church appeared in court. They stated their case, and after hearing both sides, the judge said, whatever whatever it seems that the source of this responsibility might be, it appears to me that the nightclub owner believes in prayer, and the church doesn't. It's a growing problem. We have the conversion of Saul. We have this passionate persecutor of Jesus' followers converted, and it gets the church's attention. There is the conversion of Cornelius and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, even on Gentiles, and it has a dramatic effect on the church. The profound behind-the-scenes ministry that we considered last week of Barnabas helps to form the DNA of this early church. And then comes the deliverance of the apostle Peter as an answer to prayer. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ was beginning to transform the church as the church was beginning to transform the world. So some of you know, we got snowed out a few weeks ago, and it kind of messed things up. And since no one seemed excited about hearing two full messages on any given Sunday morning, and nobody really picked up on the idea of holding a special Sunday night service so you could come and hear it, this morning we're going to go for a twofer. We're going to conclude our series on the marks of a believer, looking here at Acts chapter 12. And we're also going to initiate our Lenten series entitled The Gospel According to Peter. So for most of our Lenten series, and beginning next Sunday, we're going to focus on the Gospel of Mark, the first gospel ever written. And it's the gospel that is formed primarily on the teaching and the preaching of the Apostle Peter. Because you see, Mark was Peter's companion. He was, if you will, Peter's secretary, and he followed the apostle Peter all the way to Rome. Peter. Peter followed Jesus. Peter witnessed Jesus' miracles firsthand. He listened to Jesus' teaching. He watched Jesus die. He was one of the first to see Jesus resurrected. And he testified three times for his love for Jesus Christ. Peter was the one who gave the church's inaugural sermon on Pentecost. And now in this passage we just read this morning, Peter experienced his his own resurrection story. The church has been growing rapidly. Walls are being broken. Bridges are being built. Jews and Gentiles are being converted and coming to Jesus Christ. The gospel is being spread throughout the world. And the Jewish leaders 
are becoming increasingly concerned with this upstart group. And it's getting Herod Agrippa's attention. Now, Herod Agrippa is the son of the Herod that Jesus appeared before, and he is the father of the Herod that the Apostle Paul will eventually appear before. Herod Agrippa decides that he's going to arrest some of the church leaders, and he starts with James. James, a disciple of Jesus, one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder, the brother of the Apostle John is arrested and killed. You remember James and John. They were in Jesus' inner circle, and they once asked if they could have the place of honor at Jesus' left and right hand. And Jesus responded by asking them, are you able, are you capable of drinking the cup that I drink? And they said, oh, yes, we can do that. And Jesus said, and so you will. And so James becomes the first disciple to drink of the cup. And John will become the last disciple to die. But the Jewish leaders, they responded graciously and enthusiastically to Herod's decision to have James executed. And so in response, Herod has Peter arrested, has Peter imprisoned, and the trial was set for right after Passover. And the Jewish leaders are once again happy. You see, Peter has been talking about how Gentiles have received Jesus Christ as the Messiah that the Jewish leaders had rejected. How he has eaten with them how he has gone to their place of residence, how he has even baptized them without first circumcising them. This increasing repudiation of traditional Judaism is beginning to spread like a wildfire across dry timber. It's gone from this church still overwhelmingly comprised of Jews to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, and now to Herod himself. The church is beginning to take on a persona all its own. This new faith was no longer just another form of Judaism. It was beginning to emerge as an entirely different faith. You see, before Cornelius, most Jewish leaders were willing to tolerate this new movement because they still kept Torah. They still worshiped and prayed in the temple. They still celebrated the feasts. But now this blatant disregard of Torah keeping by Peter, it was beginning to change everything. Herod, who was a direct descendant of Maccabees through his mother, Miriamme, had endeared himself to the Pharisees by meticulously keeping Torah, by embracing the opportunity to enhance his popularity among the Jews, he had had, had James killed. And when Herod realized the Jews were so excited about that, he now planned to do the same with their leader, with Peter. 
So the question on the table isn't, why did this persecution ramp up so suddenly? The question on the table is, why weren't Christians more intensely persecuted from the beginning? Today, if someone in our circles or even in the church said, Messiah has come, and others in the church said, no, 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 Messiah has not yet come, we would have a major rift. But this conflict in the New Testament between the Jews and the early church had less to do with Messiah and a whole lot more to do with Torah. Because you see, in the Jewish faith, it's not all centered around Messiah. It's centered around the Torah. Do you keep it or don't you keep it? It is the Torah that holds the Jewish faith together. Torah represents for the Jewish people God's revealed will for them. And it was to be obeyed. No questions asked, just obeyed. The Torah has four basic nuances. Sometimes it's simply understood as we might understand the law as the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it was understood to be the entire first five books of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Torah. Sometimes it is understood to be the entire Old Testament. And sometimes it also included the Mishnah, that is all the accumulated traditional teachings for how the Jewish people were to understand and live their life based on the Old Testament. Alec Vidler writes, and I quote, belief in the Messiah was, actually still is, not the essential mark of Judaism. It is the Torah, it is the law that was the essential bond for all Jews. The Torah held them together, however much they differed on all the other matters, including even how the Torah was to be interpreted, end quote. So initially, Christianity was considered to be just a subset of Judaism, a subset that believed that this Jesus was Messiah. There were other groups of Jews who had believed in other Messiahs before and even since our Messiah. And Judaism was already a collection of groups that differed on a lot of different things. So there were the Sadducees and there were the Pharisees and there were the Hellenists and there were the Essenes and there were the Zealots. And so to have this group called Christians was no big deal, no big difference until Peter violates Torah. Herod was eager to appease the Jews. And so he has Peter, as the scripture says, thrown into prison. Now understand, Herod is taking no chances Herod probably has heard some things about these Christians and what their God has been doing. And so he has Peter bound in chains and he has guards on each side of them. And there is a 16 guard detail that is assigned to make sure Peter isn't going anywhere. And Luke writes for us in the sixth verse, the very night before Herod was about to bring him to trial. In the Greek, Luke is implying that Peter's execution is imminent. You see, once the trial is over, once the guilty verdict is pronounced, it happens. There's no delay. It's done, and it will be implemented that very day. So Peter is on borrowed time. He will soon be executed. In fact, 
you could easily say Peter is as good as dead. Even Peter knows he's about to die. But look at Peter. Peter appears to be at peace. He's sleeping. He's not fearing his impending death. He's not angry with God for this sudden turn in his life. He carries apparently no outrage at the apparent victory of evil. Peter knows that his only comfort in both life and in death is that he belongs to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Every time I read that passage, I wonder if I could sleep if my trial was the next day. I'm wondering if I really trust Jesus as Peter appears to trust Jesus with my life and my death. I'm wondering if I could be at peace whether I die like James or whether I ultimately live like Peter did. You see, throughout this entire story, it is obvious that Peter, he's not expecting an angel. And at the same time, he's not on his knees pleading for God's deliverance and intervention. Luke tells us the angel has to literally poke him in the ribs in order to wake him up so he's in a sound sleep. Peter needs angelic encouragement to to get up, to get dressed, to put on his sandals, to wrap a mantle around him and to follow the angel out. He is in a daze. Luke says he thinks he's dreaming. Luke wants us to know that even though the church is nearby fervently praying, this is entirely a work of God. God is doing this. Only God can bring life out of death. So how does Peter get out of prison? I mean, what does the video surveillance actually show? Herod would have said, it was a carefully planned and executed inside job. Okay, you'd expect that. William Barclay, the British commentator, says, quote, In this story, we do not necessarily see a miracle. It may simply be the story of a thrilling rescue. (laughs) Really, Bill? Luke, if you read the text, is absolutely convinced this is a divine intervention. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord, we read, appeared and the light shone in the cell. Sounds to me a lot like what I read in Luke 2. In the ninth verse, and an angel of the Lord appeared, exact words, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. You see, what this really is, is this is the gospel story being retold once again. The world and our lives are a mess, but God is willing repeatedly over and over to step into the mess and bring life. So this is not only Peter's resurrection story, if you will. This is the story of God's work in redeeming his world. It's all about him. Meanwhile, back at John Mark's mom's house, the church is praying. 
The church is doing what they're supposed to be doing. The church is doing what they have been trained to do. The church is doing what they've been told to do. This is the work of the church. This is intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is about praying for others' needs. When we intercede, we are asking God to do something, to change something, to rescue and or to rectify a certain situation, to make sense out of what appears to be nonsense. We are asking God to literally do his redeeming work, to be God. You see, we perceive as we look out into this world that there is a gap between what is and what we know should be. There is a gap between, between who, they, who we think they and, and the they is whoever we might be praying for are and who we think they ought to be. There is a gap between what they have and what we think they need or between what they have done and what we think they should be doing. And so as Ezekiel the prophet calls us to do, we come and in intercessory prayer, we stand in the gap. We ask God to fix it, to redeem it, to reconcile it, to renew it, to restore it, literally to resurrect it. We're asking God to intervene because we realize our world is in a mess and we are called to pray so God's transforming work in this world can go forward. I find it interesting as we read the text that Luke never tells us exactly what they were praying for. I'm sure that they prayed that Peter would remain strong as he faced death, as it came increasingly closer. Because on their mind was the fact that John, that, that, excuse me, James had just been beheaded and they were assuming that Peter would be as well. Maybe they prayed that Peter would be able to share the gospel, the good news with those guards and lead them to Jesus Christ. Maybe they were praying that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. Maybe they were actually praying for Peter's miraculous release. God had done it before. Not for James, but... This is also corporate prayer. Luke writes that the church was earnestly, fervently praying to God for him. The church. In the 12th verse, he says, many had gathered and were praying. See, this isn't just a few intercessors. This isn't just a couple of prayer warriors. This is the church together in unity, in accord, praying. This is the picture of God's people in prayer. This is the picture of God's church at work. The impact of a congregation seldom rises above their passion for prayer. Let me say that again. The impact of a congregation seldom rises above their passion for prayer. The North American church has largely neglected prayer. And so it is of no surprise that the North American church is relatively powerless. Praying together is like multiple logs on a fire. They burn longer. They burn brighter. 
They give off more warmth and energy. You see, the truth is, no power, excuse me, no prayer, no power. No power, no impact. No impact, then there's no transformation. No transformation, and we have no witness. No witness, and we don't have a church. Throughout North America, many church members hold to this crazy, and I'm going to call it what it is, heresy, that prayer is primarily a private matter between them and God. The problem is, Scripture doesn't support that idea anywhere. In fact, almost all of the pronouns that are used in connection with prayer throughout the book of Acts, and in fact, the entire New Testament, are in the plural. It is essential that we learn to pray together, praying for one another, praying for Christ's church, praying for the community in which he's placed us, praying for the world and his mission in it. This is the work of the church. It is essential for our unity. It is essential for our power, for our influence, for our witness in this world. So this is intercessory prayer. This is corporate prayer. Third, I'd like you to note that this is fervent prayer. The church is fervently praying for Peter. They have a vested interest. They care deeply. They love Peter. So their prayer is bold. Their prayer is audacious. Their prayer is persistent. As Christians, we understand that prayer is foundational to all who would follow Jesus. It's the mark of a believer. And yet, sadly, especially in North America, there doesn't seem to be much, much interest anymore in just coming together to pray. The church is increasingly under attack in North America. Over the past decades, we have seen the influence and impact of the church decrease. The protections have fallen away. Our spiritual authority is all but gone. Churches and their members have instead been directly influenced by the world. The old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. It's increasingly true of the church. And all too often the church is just simply sold out. So what is it that holds us together? Is it Jesus? Or is it something or someone else? If it's Jesus that holds us together, if we are fully devoted to Jesus, then we need to learn how to come together, how to intercede fervently for one another. Paul reminds us that we're to put on the armor of God and we're to pray in the spirit at all times and for all things. So Jesus invites us to come and to pray together. It is especially imperative when the church is in trouble and the church in North America is in deep trouble. Prayer is the natural response of one's heart and life. It's an admission that we are fully dependent on God and fully committed to following Jesus Christ. The early church trusted God. They prayed. And then they watched and witnessed God's transformation and his resurrection power. Prayer is not 
the last resort. Prayer is the first thing that the early church did. It came naturally to them. It was in their DNA. It was a mark of the church and of the believers. The early church was a praying church. Now suddenly Peter realizes that he has been resurrected. He has been freed from certain death. Scripture, Luke writes, says, then Peter came to himself and he heads off to John Mark's house, his mom's house, and he knocks on the door. And Rhoda, a servant girl, is designated to go and to see who is interrupting their prayer meeting. I mean, the audacity of such a person. And she discovers <laughs> it's their answer to prayer. It's Peter. And she gets so excited, she forgets to let Peter in and she runs back to the prayer group and she says, Peter's at the door. Peter's not dead, he's here. And they said, <laughs> yeah, right. You're crazy. You must have just imagined it. Must be his angel. Apparently, they believe more in ghosts than they believe in answered prayer. It would appear the first century church is so engrossed in their praying that they forget to look for God's answers. But the truth is our expectations are limited to our preconceptions of what God can and will do. No one imagined that God would bring life out of Peter's certain death, but he did. But this is the church that has seen God working in remarkable ways. And Luke notes for us, this is not just a, an aside addition. This is, this is critical. He notes that this is Passover time. Why is that important? Because this is the anniversary of Jesus' resurrection. These are supposedly people of great faith. And they even forget. Ever forget an anniversary? See, we need to be reminded because we forget. God is in the resurrection business. Don't ever forget. I mean, let's be fair. The persecution these believers are undergoing is rampant. They had no doubt prayed for James and God didn't deliver him. He was beheaded. Why would they assume that God's answer would be any different for Peter than it was for James? It's true some years have passed since the early church prayed for power and the entire room was shaken. Some years have passed between when they were in the upper room and they were all praying together in one accord and they were then filled with the Holy Spirit. And so perhaps their praying lacks a little bit of expectation and anticipation because they're surprised that there is an answer to their prayer. Either they weren't praying for Peter's release, which I personally find very hard to believe, or they really didn't expect that God could or would answer the prayer that they were praying. They talked about the unlimited power of God, but apparently they didn't really believe it. But here's what I think Luke is doing. I think he's allowing us to see the early church not as a bunch of great, perfect heroes and heroines in the faith, but as people like you and me 
The same kind of muddling, sometimes believing and sometimes wondering. Having a faith that's focused one minute and a faith that doubts the next. The kind of Christians that, that we all know and rarely see in our mirror every morning. See, some people I know today are very afraid to pray bold prayers because they don't really want to be embarrassed if they don't get an answer to the kind of bold prayer that they're praying. And so they ramp down what they pray for. My question is, do we really need to protect God's image, his reputation? Should we only pray prayers that have the overwhelmingly good odds in, in actually coming true? Here's one thing I do know. Unprayed prayers are always unanswered prayers. Unprayed prayers are always unanswered prayers. When we pray for someone to be healed, do we walk out of the room mumbling, I don't think she's going to make it. Have we stopped praying for our neighbor because he's just too far gone? Have we stopped praying for revival in this nation because we haven't experienced one in over a hundred years? Have we asked God to save us from our sins, but we're really not convinced, and so we're still trying to earn our salvation? Are we like the early church, so occupied with praying that we don't really recognize God's answer when it is literally staring at us in the front door? It's an old story that's been told lots of times about a man whose home was swept up in the flood. And he climbs to the roof and he asks God to save him. And a man on a jet ski comes by and he says, hop on. And the man says, no, no, you, you already have three people on it. And I've prayed and God's promised to save me. Man in a small boat comes by, he says, jump in. No, I think you've got so many people in there, one more, the boat might sink and we would all die. So it's okay, God has promised he will save me. The helicopter comes by and the pilot lowers a ladder and says, climb in. And, and the man says, no, I'm really afraid of heights, so I'll just take a pass. I've, I've prayed and God will save me. And the water rises and he drowns. And he meets God at the door of heaven and he says, I asked you to save me. Where were you? How come you didn't come? And God says, what do you mean? I sent a jet ski and a boat and a helicopter. It's right there in front of us, and sometimes we don't see it. God interrupts our prayer time with an answer. And we often see it as an interruption. People earnestly pray for their church to grow. But have they ever invited anybody to come? Parents pray that their children will grow up to, to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But have they ever sat down with their child and shared their faith? Have they ever spent time just talking about Jesus? Church members pray to be forgiven, but still harbor resentment and bitterness toward other members. People pray for their church, but are unwilling to give sacrificially to support it. 
Sometimes the answer is standing right at the door. And we don't see it and we don't believe it. We just keep asking God for an answer because the only answer we're content with is the answer our way. It also appears that when the answer arrived, they never really celebrated the answer. Peter said, shh. And I imagine Peter walking from the prison to John Mark's house after he came to understand what was going on. He says, I just can't wait to see their faces when I show up. God is so amazing. It'll be incredible. I just anticipate a, a wonderful celebration, even if the, keep the voice down. I mean, God has answered our prayer. Peter is freed. He's alive. He's safe. He's home. The son involved in a tragic accident, but he is alive and God is good. We celebrate a pregnancy after years and years of infertility and we celebrate. So when Peter escapes certain death with a, a resurrection, where is the celebration? Where's our ongoing celebration of Jesus' resurrection? Luke never mentions anything about thanksgiving or praise. Where's the doxology? How much joy have we missed because we have failed to pray, failed to see God's answers, or failed to even acknowledge what God has done? How much prayer have we set aside because we don't really trust Jesus? We aren't really interested in discerning his will. We really aren't fully committed to follow him. It's no wonder people don't want to come to a prayer meeting anymore. People don't really believe in prayer. After Peter describes how the Lord brought him out of prison, he says, tell James, the brother of Jesus and the brothers and sisters about this. Why? Because you see now James... The brother of Jesus is the leader of the Jerusalem church. Because in 62 AD, just a few years, he too was going to drink the cup. He would meet the same fate that James did. Peter wants James to know about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and prayer. Because you see, sometimes prayer saves us from the cup like it does Peter here. But sometimes that prayer gives us the strength to drink it like James. This story is designed to offer confidence and comfort to us as Christ's church. To remind us that Christ is still in charge, even though we're in a really messy world. Robert McMurray McShion says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. <laughs> and yet distance should make no difference. Even Jesus says he's constantly praying for us. Paul writes in Romans 8, we do not know what and how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes on behalf with sighs too deep for words. So Jesus prays, the Spirit prays, and the church is called to pray 
Because it's what Jesus does. Because God always answers our prayers, even if it doesn't always look like the way we want it to go. And because prayer always brings deliverance, always brings resurrection, always brings transformational power, always brings life. That's why Luke begins his story of the acts of the churches talking about prayer. Acts 1.14, Acts 1.24. That's why Luke now concludes this first major section in the book of Acts with a story about the church in prayer. Bookends. Bookends around the move of God in the church. This first part ends with the word of God grew and multiplied, verse 24. You see, there is a direct correlation between a healthy, growing church and prayer. A healthy church is a praying church, and a praying church is a healthy church. And the mark of a believer is that they're a part of that church. This experience deeply impacts Peter. His passion for the gospel is reaffirmed. He commits to reminding the church of God's mission, of what Jesus Christ has done. He helps Mark underwrite the first gospel ever written, and he brings new life, the story of his resurrection to a world so desperate to hear some good news at the risk of his life. And Peter, we know too, will also drink the cup. Peter now understands that God builds his church on Jesus through the prayers of his people. So let's pray. Father, we pray and we pray that our life will be marked by prayer, that this church will be a praying church, that we, be, we will be participants in the transformation of this world because we are simply doing what you have asked us to do, the work of the church, to pray. To pray that your will might be done. To pray that your mission might be complete that your church might grow, that your kingdom might come. Prayers, Lord, that we know you love to answer. And we pray those prayers in the powerful, transforming, resurrecting name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen.